0: Welcome to Good Natured, a podcast where you can join us for uplifting chats that shine a light
1: on conservation challenges. We interview inspiring conservationists from lots of different backgrounds who each engage with conservation in their own way. Today, we're thrilled to have Sofia Shukova as a guest.
0: And today, you can expect to hear about the artistic process, about collaborations between artists and scientists, and also about the wildlife trade.
1: Hey, Sophia! Hi Julia! Today on the podcast we have Sophia Shukova. Sophia is a Russian native and Singapore-based wildlife artist and conservationist and she has a particular interest in tackling illegal and unsustainable wildlife trade and promoting human wildlife coexistence.
0: And we're really excited to have Sophia on the podcast today to tell us more about our artistic process but also about the ways she works with different stakeholders like scientists or uh, conservation practitioners and kind of bring the data
1: that they have
0: into these visual forms that our artworks can be.
1: And Sophia uses all kinds of mediums to create her art. So she's gonna tell us more about that and how she chooses them. Sophia identifies as an artivist, which as the name indicates, means combining your art and activism to kind of communicate about causes that you care about and maybe galvanize change. So let's hear from Sophia.
0: Hi, Sophia. We're super excited to have you with us today. Hi, Sophia. Hi, Julie. So you're both an artist and a conservationist. What drove you to combine these two interests together?
2: I actually have quite an unconventional journey to become a conservationist and an artist. I finished architecture school. I, yeah, soon enough after finishing architecture school, I realized that architecture is probably not the thing I want to do for the rest of my life. So I started exploring other options. I was looking for a job. I did some freelance projects. And while doing that, I also started to paint. And majority of the subjects of my paintings were animals. So I started to learn more about them, about their conservation statuses, threats they're facing, etc. And through this exploration, I actually understood that I would like to be involved more in conservation. than I did a short course on species conservation, volunteered for a while, and then got my first job in conservation.
1: I only recently learned about the artivism movement, which I love. I mean, it's such a good word. So I was wondering, in what ways do you consider yourself an artivist?
2: That's a very good question, especially because um, wildlife artivism term is quite new. So I guess for me, wildlife artivism is when the wildlife artist is not only portraying the animals in their natural habitat or white background, but try to tell a story which is related to conservation or the threats this particular species is facing. So there is a little bit more of the message behind the art piece. In the majority of my works are about the threats the species are facing. So, for example, I have a whole series of artworks about Asian songbird trade and how the birds are captured,
0: how they traded and kept in small cages, etc. And so art can be a powerful way to engage different audiences with conservation issues, as you've already mentioned before. Can you tell us a bit more about your process of creating conservation-related artworks? Well, my
2: creative process really differs from case to case, and that's why it's called creative, I guess. And that's all right that it's different and sometimes unpredictable even. Overall, I think my process depends on many different factors, including the project scales and limitations. So, for example, how much time I have to create a particular piece, which materials I have, or any other resources that are available or not available to me. Let me give you a couple of examples of artworks and the projects I have been working on. So. Have a better understanding how it works so for example one of the artworks i previously created is called red ivory and it was inspired by a report that i read on the trade of the helmeted hornbills and how the casks are used in decorations so i think this report was written by traffic if i'm not wrong a couple of years ago so i just read it got inspired and created a piece I don't think I even done any sketches at all. Well, maybe I did a couple, but not too many. So this piece was executed really, really quickly. The project I'm currently working on is on stingray trade and conservation. And it's a long-term collaboration with a shark and ray scientist. Uh, her name is Naomi Clark Chen. So she previously studied shark and ray trade in singapore and she's now doing her phd mostly focusing on biology and ecology of stingrays so basically this project is about me learning from her from a scientist observing her work asking right and sometimes wrong questions uh, brainstorming ideas together and creating art inspired by this experience of collaboration and learning from a scientist. So this project started in the beginning of this year and is still ongoing and based on this experience I already created quite a few sketches, works and sculpture and now I'm planning on creating a larger scale piece or like even actually an installation for public to see and to interact with. relatively easy for me to get an inspiration because I just consume a lot of information about various conservation issues on a daily basis. And a lot of artists, wildlife artists, are actually struggling because they do not have enough opportunities to learn about conservation topics. I feel like a lot of papers on conservation or even reports are not engaging enough for them to read so it might be a little bit more difficult for them to explore um, some conservation topics in the art. And that's why I think the collaboration between artists and conservation scientists or conservationists working in the field are so important and especially it's it's important when it goes beyond uh, just illustrating something or producing the pieces for fundraising.
1: And in your art, you use multiple techniques. So I looked through your Instagram and I saw that you use lino cut prints and watercolors and pencil sketches and even kites. How do you choose the right medium for a piece?
2: That's a very good question. And I think often it's it's based on what I have available and which medium I'm feeling comfortable with. So when I just started creating wildlife art, I mostly um, used uh, acrylic and watercolors and then I moved into using liner cuts. A liner cut technique is basically a printing technique. So an artist would use a piece of linoleum, which is material used in construction for many different purposes, but this material is also used in art. So this piece of linoleum can be carved with knives or special cutters. Then an artist would apply it paints on this piece of card linoleum and print the image on the paper. So basically, the final piece will be the print on the paper. Right now I really experiment with whatever medium I feel like experimenting for this particular piece, and it's really difficult for me to explain the choice sometimes. I'm I just really feeling like using it.
1: So do you feel like it's more of an intuitive choice sometimes? Yeah, definitely. Often when I'm thinking about a particular
2: topic on which I want to create an art piece, I already have an image in my head how it will look like. So this image might transform into something else with the time, but I kind of would already visualize if it's very nuanced piece for which I would probably go with watercolors or that it's, it's a piece of very strong contrast for which I will probably go with liner cut. I guess it's just a matter of choosing the materials depending on the image that you want to create.
1: Okay and so you said that with some of your pieces you get them done in a day and uh, you only have to do maybe a couple of sketches if anything. And so is that because you just have such a clear vision in your head that you can kind of execute it? Like, what does the sketching add to the process?
2: I guess I don't do much of the sketches because I am quite good in visualisation of the prospective image in my head. So some artists really need to sit down and spend time on sketching things. Uh, which is a part of my day process for me. I can, for example, uh, walk on the street or exercise or eat and keep thinking about how this particular
1: piece will look like. So I'm kind of still sketching, but just in my head. I love it. Just your art in the everyday. Like you're going around just like kind of daydreaming and maybe being able to get all your errands done, but still doing the art yeah exactly
2: sometimes I'm like I might even have a dinner with my partner and then to say him uh can we just stop for a bit I need to write some ideas down or I need to make a quick sketch <laughs> because I already visualize it in my head but I need to just to put it somewhere so I do not forgot
0: and in terms of how the art is then perceived once you know, you've know you got your installation or exhibition or once you've posted the artwork on social media, what's been uh, the perception of the public? Is there anything that has been surprising to you when you've released artworks? What has been your experience?
2: It's actually always a little bit surprising for me because I'm really bad in predicting which artworks people would like more. So, but overall, I usually get a positive feedback However, having said that, it doesn't translate to selling of the artworks. So sometimes you might get very positive feedback about the concept and the impact that particular artwork produced on a person. But this doesn't mean that the person will buy it. So there is um, kind of a lot of good things about influencing people and uh, perhaps even influencing uh, their behaviors but not as much profit in terms of livelihood opportunities, I would say. It's very challenging, actually, because my day job is in conservation. And I'm sure you know that it's not paid very well usually.
1: Yeah, for sure. Beyond art, a lot of your work and research has focused on captive animals. So, for example, studying exotic pets in Russia, and as you were mentioning, the songbird trade in Southeast Asia. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it's like to do conservation in these spaces where animals and humans are coexisting so closely. That's a very good question.
2: I guess that's a very natural area of conservation for me to work with. Because, well, first of all, I do not have a background in hardcore biology. All the studies uh, that I did conservation related were more on the social science side of things. So it's kind of natural for me to consider human dimension when it comes to conservation. It's always very interesting to talk with people and work with people who are engaged somehow with wildlife, whether by keeping it or selling it or trapping it or trying to save it as well. I think my perception of these people changed a lot since I started working in conservation. For example, when I did a research in Russia on um, exotic pet keepers, for example, people keeping tigers or bats in, the, say, small flats in Moscow, I was very skeptical about meeting these people and talking with them. But after engaging with them, I realized that they are actually good people and they're thinking that by keeping this animal, they're protecting them and probably engaging Them is the most important thing conservationists can do in order to change things and to help the species uh, to survive. I had an opportunity to meet a poacher of Asian songbirds in Indonesia, and he he's trapping the bird just because he doesn't have other livelihood to support his family. So he likes birds very much, and he was open to meet with me and to talk with me, and actually to show how he traps and keep the birds. And given another opportunity, he wouldn't do that. So it's very important to work with such people and to try to engage them in conservation in different ways. I'm mm-hmm. currently staying in Singapore and in Singapore a lot of wildlife coexists very closely with humans. And I previously had an opportunity to work in Wildlife Rescue Center and um, to do some wildlife rescues where we were rescuing Cobras from houses, pangolins, uh, hornbills, and many other species. And that's always so interesting how people from more or less the same background uh, can react totally different on the species present um, around them. So I saw people just putting insect sprays on snakes and other people trying to help them to escape in the safest way as possible prioritizing their welfare over their own. So that's
1: interesting. I think that sometimes people can have such great intentions, but then actually maybe the follow through is what you end up with a problem in conservation. Like maybe they think that something is the best thing to do for an animal, but ultimately perhaps it's actually not. And I guess you start to get into this distinction of animal welfare versus conservation. But like, have you seen this, this like really good intention, but maybe needing a bit more guidance or education?
2: Yes, when I did a research in Russia on exotic pet ownership, a lot of pe- people actually told that by keeping the spirits in captivity, they are saving them because there is no habitat left for them or the habitat um, is in such a poor condition that they wouldn't be able to survive them. As well some people thought that there is very high level of poaching in their natural habitat so they preferred to keep and breed them in captivity so that can be a good intention the problem is that majority of these people very not con- contributing to captive breeding of the species in terms of conservation i think a lot of these people who are collectors of the exotic pet, they actually know the behaviors of animals and their husband very well. So engaging them into working for a conservation captive breeding facility might be helpful. Or even if they have a collection of some rare species, they can ask them to contribute individuals to um, conservation breeding facilities. As a conservationist who acknowledge very much for animal welfare, it's especially challenging for me to kind of not just say that all people keeping wildlife at homes are bad, but actually acknowledge they can be very helpful for conservation and they have a good intention.
1: I mean, such murky waters. So in some ways, very brave to be working in them, I think, because it's so not clear-cut.
2: The illegal wildlife trade is not a good thing.
1: Even the legal
2: wildlife trade is not always a good thing. And it's often cruel, it undermines animal welfare, it also poses a lot of risk to humans involved in the trade or humans not even involved in the trade. Like we all now trying to survive COVID, which is a direct consequence of wildlife trade, right? Let's remember it. So that's a difficult part of it, and uh, it's difficult to see the wildlife trade happening pretty much all the time, everywhere. I'm living in Asia, so I'm very often seeing various species being sold on the markets or like even in the pharmacy shops uh, as a food, etc. So that's challenging and this is why I think for me to try to be able to think about other things And seeing wildlife in nature is such an important coping mechanism to just survive all this um, negativity.
0: We have a question for you that we ask all our guests on this podcast. So do you feel optimistic about the future of nature? Well,
2: I'm not a very optimistic person uh, when it comes to conservation. It just can be really challenging to see how humans are based in every conservation opportunity they have and how habitats are getting destroyed, species getting um, getting seen, et etc. It's heartbreaking. However, I think I found the coping mechanisms for me to stay more optimistic and keep working and keep trying to save forces left. And so for myself, I think it's very important to stay connected with nature. So sometimes when I'm working long hours, especially when it's a desk-based job, I keep reading and reading how everything, how the nature is destroyed and all species are lost. So it's important for me to go outside and actually see that the trees are still there, there are birds on the trees, um, there are monkeys around. Again, I'm very lucky to live in Singapore, uh, so I can see a lot of biodiversity around. And it really helps and um, it gives a little bit more energy to keep fighting.
0: Yeah, so
1: that's your way of recharging, just making sure that you have to spend that time in nature. That's great. I totally agree. I I find when I'm getting a bit overwhelmed, going for a walk outside really helps. Do you think you could please tell us about another conservationist that you admire?
2: So this is a very difficult question to answer because I think there are so many of them, and honestly, each conservationist matter, no matter um, which organization they're working with or which position they have. If I really need to pick one person, it would be the director of, say, Vietnam's Wildlife Organization based in Vietnam. His name. He's Thai and he's such a huge inspiration for me. Back in 2016, I did an art conservation project on pangolins in Vietnam. And during that time, I also was lucky enough to assist on the rescue of pangolins from illegal wildlife trade. And it's still such an important memory for me and very motivating one. So I would be forever grateful for this opportunity to tie. He's very hardworking. He really believes in what he does. I think he's quite optimistic, actually. (laughs) Probably more optimistic than
0: I am. (laughs) Thank you so much for answering all our questions.
1: That was great. I loved hearing about Sophia's artistic process and then all of the ways that she's kind of combined that with her knowledge and experience in conservation as well. Yeah, for
0: sure. And I I find it really interesting as well in terms of when we talk to artists who have an interest or a passion for conservation to kind of see where that came from. And in her case, I thought, this process that she went through to kind of discover what she wanted to do and how she started with architecture and then like started doing art on her own was quite an interesting process.
1: Totally and also just hearing about this process of exploration that she will go through even every time that she's creating a different piece of art. Just kind of that intuitive process where she will pick a medium or just kind of like visualize in her brain what it is that she wants to do next. I thought I found that really cool to hear about.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I think as well, like that ties in with also the fact that she described that sometimes a creative process is not something that can be really explained. I I love the way she was saying how sometimes she'll be eating dinner with her partner and then suddenly something comes in her mind and she's just like, sorry, we have to pause. I have to like write this down. And I I find that so interesting in in, in terms of creativity to see how it's not something, I mean, I guess the process is different for different people, but I feel often it's not really something you can tame or really like say, oh, I'll do this from like eight to 10 a.m. today. It's just something that is a bit without boundaries.
1: It's kind of embedded in daily life. I really loved when she said that about the dinner with her partner because my one of my really good friends still makes fun of me because we were at a party having a conversation and suddenly I was like, oh my God, I've just had a really good idea for a PhD, like for my PhD, where, where, where are the post-its? Yeah, I don't know. These ideas can just come to us in the most unexpected and maybe slightly inconvenient moments. For sure. But I think another challenge
0: as well of being an artist that she she pointed us toward is the idea that you can't, it's really hard to predict how your work will land. You can never know if someone is going to, you know, really have that feeling with your artwork or if it's going to land the way you want it. So it's, it's such a hard thing to control as well, which I thought was, again, like quite
1: interesting. It's probably a bit stressful when you don't know how people will react. But it can all, I don't know, I feel like there's also a little bit of a thrill in that. Maybe you make something really that you think is really great, but it doesn't resonate. And then on the other hand, maybe one day you put something out that you're just not that sure about and it turns out people think it's really great. Maybe part of gaining experience is sort of getting to the point where you can predict those responses a little bit more, or like you get to know your audience better. I wonder if even the most famous artist is like, I'm gonna make this and it's gonna be so great and everybody's going to just react exactly as I please. Like, I don't think that ever happens.
0: Yeah, it feels so subjective, but at the same time it's so important to have artists build that bridge as well to showcase conservation in a way that is completely different from what we're seeing elsewhere. And I really love how she was saying that she enjoy working with scientists and how many artists don't have that chance of actually really engaging with people who have the data. Um, and I thought that was a, a really interesting process to hear about how she would read a report or just have a chat with a scientist and then take that on board to start an artwork based on it.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because I think in the podcast, we've, some, we've spoken to a lot of these sort of hybrid people who maybe have experience both in science and um, in art. And so it's interesting to think about the different ways that these processes can happen, right? Sometimes it's within one person and it's all being catalyzed at the same time. But then there's also such value in kind of reaching across this divide sometimes and really kind of bringing different people's expertise to fruition. And I think sometimes those collaborations can be really great because you are actually sort of creating something new between the two of you. I
0: think as well as a science communicator, it also makes me think of how can we create more bridges between artists and scientists? You know, what is the process that we can get these two groups to talk to each other so that you can have these kind of fruitful collaborations coming to life and have these artworks being developed so that we can reach audiences that we wouldn't reach otherwise with our
1: conservation messages? Yeah, and because once you put together those sort of radically different ways of thinking and processing things, then I think that such wonderful things can emerge. And speaking of connecting across divides, I don't know, I found it really interesting how Sophia was talking about some of the work that she's done on the illegal wildlife trade and maybe some of the assumptions that she had going into it around the people who were involved in this trade and then the ways that they were upended for her and everything that she learned from from that.
0: But also in terms of thinking of how to engage them and the fact that she was saying as well that once she started engaging, she discovered that completely different facet of them and realized that they are really passionate about these species. And sometimes we have the assumption of, people being engaged in the wildlife trade as, as being a certain way or not caring. And uh, I thought it was fascinating to hear about how she discovered a completely different layers to, to the people that she kind of thought in her head that she had figured out.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I also find this idea of this proximity between people and wildlife so interesting because quite often maybe we think of conservation as something that happens far away in some like really exotic jungle but actually it's sort of happening all around us and being expressed in these relationships and daily habits closer to home.
0: Yeah, and I guess another great way of thinking about it as well is the fact that she was saying involving people who might be breeding species into conservation projects is so important because actually they have access to these species, they're really good at breeding them and they can bring these skills in help of conservation rather than, you know, just breeding them to then sell them.
1: Yeah, so kind of capitalizing on that knowledge and trying to maybe build collaborations rather than alienate different sectors. I mean, it might not always be possible, but I think that when it is, it could be a really promising way to move forward.
0: Yeah, and just, you know, tapping into the skills that people have as well, I think is always so powerful. So, yeah, I guess it's a great way to end
1: this episode. Collaboration, working together. Very Conservation Optimism. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or reactions, you can send us a voice note at podcast at conservationoptimism.org or you can reach us on Twitter at conserveoptimism.
0: And we're looking forward to receiving your voice notes. And if you send us some, you might even be featured on the podcast. So send them our way.
1: This episode was produced and edited by Julia Minier and myself, Sofia Castello-Ticalt. Our theme song was composed and produced by Matthew Kemp. Our transcripts are available thanks to the help of Alexandra Davis. This season of Good Natured was funded by Synchronicity Earth, the Whitley Fund for Nature, and the University of Oxford Departmental Public Engagement with Research Seed Fund.